Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Well, the fact of the matter is that if you're a big fan of river crossings, the next two weeks on Londonist Out Loud are for you. But do not be deterred if you happen to prefer a lively character, some quirky things to see and do, and some historical trivia. You won't be disappointed either. I'm right next to the Mayflower Pub this week on the south bank of the Thames, where many of the old timber-framed houses have been patched up and repaired using pieces of ships. In fact, glance through at least one of the shop windows there and you can see that the crossbeams towards the ceiling are held up by knees, which is to say wooden versions of what we'd call brackets. Now, they come from ships and if you have a fracture in one of those or if it's gotten too dry and is starting to give, then your ship is weak at the knees. It's the 11th of July 2014. I'm in Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a long throw from your front door. Thames and it's just rain there's a, a very curious I would say autumnal feeling in the air which is odd given that we're a long way from that season just yet you'll hear the waves lapping against the shingle by the shore we're on the south bank here we're in Rotherhithe off to our left we can see the shard just about capture a bit of the eye but on the opposite bank, really, what we can see are the old wharf houses, uh, probably full of modern flats now. And there's a sort of a lazy Sunday afternoon feeling to the place, despite the fact that we're midweek. So it's a, a place of contradiction so far. It's the first time I've been to Rotherhithe. I'm here by recommendation of a, a listener, in fact, Raoul Summers, who pointed us in the direction of the Brunel Museum. So I'm here with the director of that museum, the curator thereof also, Robert Hulse. Hi. Hello. Welcome to the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> Thank you. Brunel is one of those names that I feel should have a greater significance in London. I'm aware of bridges that have come and gone that were created by him. And in fact, next week we're going to be at the Bridge Exhibition over at the Museum of London Docklands and we'll be talking about all of London's bridges. But of course, there's also tunnels that Brunel is famous for. So really, I suppose the place to start might be to just get a, an idea of the overall impact of this one individual on London. Yes, he's our most famous engineer. And although people think of him as a Bristol man, there's more Brunel in London than in Bristol. And he always lived in London. And he only went to Bristol because he was half drowned just 20 paces from where we're standing. Uh, Okay. Um, Given that we've got the museum behind us and the Thames in front of us, uh, did he nearly drown behind or in front? (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't swimming. The museum is a converted engine house. It's a scheduled ancient monument, and this is where Isambard King de Brunel, our most famous engineer, began his extraordinary meteoric career at the age of 19 years, working with his dad, a Frenchman. 
Uh, right, yes, this is, this is one of those facts that's sitting somewhere in the back of my mind. And there, there was another Brunel who was uh, involved in similar sorts of things. I, I guess whenever one thinks of Brunel, it's difficult to escape from that iconic image with the chains in the background, the enormous chains. And he's there puffing out his belly and uh, smoking a cigar, enormous sideburns, big top hat. That's right. Little man, big hat, big ideas, big chains, big cigar. And that photograph was taken just down the river on the Isle of Dogs. So it's a London photograph. And those chains were used to launch his last project. We're standing right by his first project, 19 years old, working with his dad. But his last project was down the river on the Isle of Dogs. And that was the biggest ship in the world. It's called the Great Eastern. It was nicknamed Leviathan. And it was a ship so big they had to launch it sideways. The Thames is not wide enough. It was big enough to steam from here to Australia and back again without refuelling. It was the biggest ship in the world for 50 years. I mean, we're looking at the Shard, and it's the tallest building in Europe for the moment, for another few weeks, but there's always another one coming up behind. They're building a taller building than that in Russia. But the Great Eastern was the biggest ship in the world for 50 years the next ship to go past it in tonnage was the Lusitania. So it really was a Leviathan, it really was a sea monster. The other nickname which Brunel didn't favour was the ship that doesn't like the water because they struggle to get it down the ramps. The, the obvious way to launch a ship is, uh, it's called a free launch. It's on top of the slipway, uh, you remove the chocks, the, the ship slides gracefully stern first into the water the the lady with the big hat smashes the bottle against the prow and and there we are it's um it's like in all the films but this was so big that brunel thought a free launch would be too dangerous so it was pushed inch by inch down these ramps by uh hydraulic rams so it was the ship that they couldn't launch they invited thousands of people to see the launch and they couldn't get it in the water it's a terrible humiliation and that photograph that you've just described which is the the iconic engineer uh, which is of course the figure who now represents the industrial revolution ever since the opening ceremony of the olympics um, where sir kenneth branner portrayed brunel that figure triumphant as you've just described him is the figure that soon after collapsed and was taken to his London home and his sickbed and, and deathbed, as turned out. So it's a wonderful irony that the, the, the picture which, which exemplifies the engineer triumphant uh, actually is undercut by this rather sad story because he died just soon after and, and 53 years old. That was his last project. Uh, where we are now, this is his first. Before we move on to more positive stuff, what did he, he die of? What killed him? Well, he smoked 40 cigars a day, which is not a good idea, and he learned to swim in the River Thames, uh, which is... D- during the Industrial Revolution. During the Industrial Revolution. I mean, I wouldn't recommend people learning to swim in the Thames now. Well, it's a lot cleaner, but certainly in... In the 1820s, that's not a good idea. Um, and he he survived on four hours sleep a day. Uh, well, a night, I suppose. He survived on four hours sleep. Uh, so he burnt himself out. But they reckon that it was Bright's disease, uh, which is a, a kidney disease, that actually dispatched him. Was he fond of a tipple as well? Looks as though he may have been. Uh, well, he's half French. Uh, sorry, that's a terrible thing to say. Uh, yes, I think he probably was. Yes, uh, there is no record. I have no reason to doubt he didn't enjoy a good glass of fine wine. Something about his girth seems to uh, suggest <laughs> that. Well, let's let's uh, whiz back in time then. Now, you say nineteen years old. I'm gonna. Oh, let's see if I can remember any dates at all. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a pot shot at this. I'm gonna say that would be about eighteen twenty eight. Close, yeah. He began working here 1825 uh, as, as a 19... In fact, he took charge here. Uh, he, his father was taken ill 
his father, the Frenchman, had a stroke and uh, he took over. He was resident engineer. Now, what, when you say here, what was here that he was taking over? Yes, uh, this is, we're standing, and I know it's autumnal, but this is Rotherhithe Beach just behind you. Um, and though you wouldn't, well, you could take your bucket and your spade. You see, there's a strand there. And actually, you'd find something out that Brunel found out just here because we're standing directly above the first tunnel under a river anywhere in the world. Uh, This is an international landmark site and it's very important for engineers because it's the first tunnel under a river anywhere and it's a tunnel through soft earth. Now, paradoxically, the easiest stuff to dig through is rock, solid rock. Uh, Soft earth is very difficult because it it caves in and if you were on that beach behind you with a bucket and a spade and you dug any depth at all then you'd find out as children find out all over the world the uh, the hole caves in Uh, the hole caves in because it's sand it's soft earth and also it fills with water so if that happens to children on the beach just down there then it's happening even more so here, uh, building a tunnel. And the answer is you build your hole above the ground. For the listener to whom that made no sense whatsoever, I'm, I'm with you. How, <laughs> how, what do you mean you do? <laughs> you build your hole? No, I've no idea. Uh, what do you mean? Hang on. Do you, are you suggest, so you construct like a tube or something and drop that down? Yeah, exactly. Ah. Exactly. What you do is uh, you, the engineers call it a caisson. But what Brunel did here... Uh, was he built a tower 50 feet tall. Now, remember, Marc Brunel is French. His son Isambard is half French. They come over with fanfare explaining they're going to build a tunnel under the River Thames and they start building a tower 50 feet tall. So uh, they were barracked, of course, they would be now. And it was along the lines, you're going the wrong way. (laughs) Along the lines call yourselves engineers in this country i don't know what it's like in france but over here all our tunnels absolutely all our tunnels are underneath the ground look at the instructions but the trick is that the shaft the tower the 50 foot tall tower was built on an iron ring so it's like a pastry cutter it is like the biggest pastry cutter in the world it is a 1000 ton pastry cutter or caisson and they dig from the inside and as they dig from the inside the whole thing sinks down like a pastry cutter into a soft dough and what began as a tower 50 feet tall finishes up as a brick line shaft so yes they built the hole above the ground and sunk it And they're the first people to do that. And that's what people do all the time, all over the world, ever since. Now, I've I've got a bit of an imagination crisis going on here because what I started out with when you described the 50-foot tower was something vertical dropping down vertically. But clearly the tunnel ends up being something a bit more like horizontal. How does it shift from one to the other? That's the second stage. Yes, they sink the tower and then they lower into the tower the miner's cage and this is Marc Brunel the Frenchman's uh, patented invention which is used now in automated form in cities all over the world it's a tunnelling shield it's a tunnel boring machine it's the world's first tunnel boring machine and what they lowered into this sunken hole was uh, a contraption a huge big contraption with 36 cages for 36 miners so each cage is the size of a man and each man has in front of him a wall of planks and each man takes out the top two poles that hold the top plank in position and then removes the plank and then digs to four inches about the size of a brick then puts back the plank puts back the poles, extends them four inches, braces them against the cage and takes out the one below. Digs to four inches, replaces the plank, extends the poles, takes out the ones. It's incredibly laborious. And when the miner has done the whole of the wall in front of him, 
and the man above him and below him have done the same, then those three in a row are pushed forwards by screw jacks. Like the thing you'd use to change the wheel of the car, but much bigger, of course, and pushing sideways instead of upwards. And as the screw jacks push the cages forwards, then bricklayers working behind them build the walls. And that's the only way you can dig through soft earth, inside a a small cage so it doesn't cave in on you, digging in narrow strips so the exposure to danger is limited, and moving gingerly forwards, and as you move forwards, building the walls behind you. Stunning to imagine that. Can you imagine the uh, time-lapse photography of an operation like that? Yeah, it's a huge machine. It's consuming hundreds of men uh, because you've got 36 men at the front and behind them you've got people moving out the spoil and uh, behind them you've got people bringing up bricks and cement and and above them you've got people uh, working the pumping engines because bringing in oxygen well no sadly no 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 oxygen Uh, there wasn't much air down there and if you could get some you should breathe it Uh, because someone else will have it if you don't. And they worked in the most appalling conditions. Uh, I've described it as best I can, and it seems quite neat and quite organised. But the, the planks that kept back the soft earth didn't keep back the water. So the men in the cages were showered with Thames water from the start to the finish of the day. And that wouldn't be pleasant today, but, but in 1825, the Thames is the the biggest open sewer in the world so they're being doused with with sewage all day long Uh, and they're not just dodging sewage they're dodging flames they're dodging flames because they're digging through what was marsh i mean here we're standing uh, on the esplanade over rotherhithe beach Uh, but of course the the configuration was much more complex in Brunel's day. The, the river was twice as wide. The, uh, the border between land and river was, was convoluted and intricate, and, and, and this neat wall just wasn't how it was. This is marshy, and uh, where you get marsh and rotting vegetation, you get marsh gas or methane. So these men, they have oil lamps quite unreasonable to ask them to work in the dark but of course the oil lamps ignite the methane so there are flames as well as sewage shooting from the cages Uh, it's appalling I mean it is the worst job in the world but they only work two hour shifts they collapse after two hours and they're carried out and replaced by men who are still breathing And they work until they stop breathing and they're replaced in their turn. And in this way, uh, looking now across the river, it's about 1,200 feet. In this way, Brunel's miners inched their way underneath the River Thames. I find that uh, astonishing to think of. Uh, I don't know whether this is... I'm almost certain this is bringing a sort of a modern mindset to something 200 years old. But were there... Was there any kind of ethical dimension to treating a workforce uh, in that way or subjecting a workforce to those kind of perils? No, no, uh, no, no, there wasn't. Uh, life was cheap and uh, there was a strike. They wanted more pay. And uh, young Brunel's answer was to sack everybody and get cheaper people in. So uh, it, it is a very different kind of uh, social context. And they did work in ways that we would not dream of working now and uh, only six men died in floods but there is no record of the numbers who died from cholera typhoid dysentery and the rest because they're they're showering in sewage you know they're it's dripping down their faces going in their eyes they're ingesting it is just too unpleasant to think about for too long and even those who didn't die and they did die when they left the workplace so you couldn't actually pin it on the Brunels I'm perhaps being a little harsh but I'm I'm describing not the way Brunel worked but the way uh, all work sites were 
in the early 19th century. Uh, those who didn't die suffered. They had, um, they called it tunnel sickness, and the the symptoms were uh, skin complaints, of course, um, respiratory failure, uh, blindness, temporary or permanent, madness, temporary or permanent. If the brain doesn't get oxygen, then it doesn't work, of course. And uh, uh, a nice touch, this, I think, rotting fingernails. So it's unpleasant, uh, but they're, they're paid quite well. Uh, they were paid um, a pound a week, which doesn't mean much to us. But if I tell you that a police inspector uh, got less than a pound a week, then it's a good wage. They're not big, strong, stupid men. They are big, strong, uh, brave and um, clever, technically accomplished people. Do you know there are clever people uh, designing buildings, but there are also clever people putting them up? Mm. And you know that. I'm hopeless doing jobs at home. Uh, I stand in awe at people who can fix things, and these are people who could fix things. These are people who could put up a set of shelves. Yes, they surely could. <laughs> Well, we've, we've focused uh, quite a lot on the uh, the people down the tunnels here. I suppose one thing that comes to mind is that it's a very, it's quite a specialist thing to be getting into, the, the digging of enormous tunnels, the creating of enormous ships. He seemed to have vision. Um, part of what you were saying about his father and, and inheriting the business from his father almost makes me think that... Um, <laughs> personal talent and wits aside it's almost as though that was one person split between two generations that happened to be able to run the same business and focus on the same operations is there anything in that was he off to an advantage because his father was doing what he was doing yes yes i think he was and um the other father and son team were the stevensons uh, George and Robert Stevenson and, and Robert Stevenson was uh, Isambard King of Brunel's great friend as well as rival uh, so yes it, 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 it was quite difficult to look at what Isambard King de Brunel did and what his father Mark Brunel did and a lot of engineers say it's impossible to divide them uh, some engineers say that Mark Brunel the Frenchman was the father, was the greater genius. Uh, and, of course, his son was prolific. Uh, tunnels, bridges, steamships, steam locomotives. Um, he was a polymath. But his father... This may surprise you. If you're looking for the father of the modern world, it's not Isambard. It's Marc Brunel. Because Marc Brunel, the Frenchman, is the first person in the world to devise a system of automated production for the pulley blocks on the sailing ships. So they're the things that you use to bring up the sails and take them down again. And that canvas is, is really heavy. And in a, in a, a wind like today, it's, it's even heavier. And if it's wet, then uh, it's putting a terrible strain on these pulley blocks. And these pulley blocks are made by hand, or they were. The Admiralty had 150 skilled craftsmen making pulley blocks round the year for the for the ships in the in the navy. I'm imagining that the pulley block would be sort of a wheel in a, a kind of a triangular shape that's pinned to the deck or something like that. Yes, that sort of thing. Yes, like you see on those films, um, and and a, a wheel that goes round, and you you pull the pull the rope through that. Uh, through that wheel, Got through it. that groove, and, and bring bring it up, uh, and and what Mark Brunel did was he he divided the process of manufacture. That's a modern word, isn't it? He divided the way you make these into six separate stages. And he built a machine to perform each of those stages and a self-correcting machine so it could be operated by unskilled people. So with Mark Brunel's invention, they were producing more blocks and better blocks and more cheaply with 30 unskilled labourers instead of 150 um, skilled craftsmen. So... 
that's the I've just described as best I can the 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 world's first automated production system. And there's the seeds of the industrial Re- revolution right there. Exactly right, and and also uh, the the Luddites and um, 150 skilled but unemployed craftsmen. That absolutely is the world that we live in, and uh, it wasn't Henry Ford who began it it was mark brunel uh, he did the same thing again for boots i mean they're called wellington boots but they should be called brunel boots and uh, our great battle at waterloo uh, where wellington's troops were victorious his soldiers were were shod with boots manufactured in an automated process like the one I described for the Polyblocks, uh, by a Frenchman. They were, isn't it funny to think of it, they were uh, French boots on English shoes at the Battle of Waterloo and they were French Polyblocks in the ships at the Battle of Trafalgar. So... I'm slightly more in awe of the idea that the Battle of Waterloo... I've got to recast it in my mind that everybody on the English side of the Battle of Waterloo was dressed in Wellingtons. <laughs> yes, well, um, it, they're called Wellingtons because they come up a bit. They, they were army boots, and no, they weren't... Uh, they weren't green wellies. Uh, oh, please, please, wellies. please let me have that idea. Well, OK. Now, you, you hold, <laughs> hold on to that. Um, uh, but the, uh, the, the, the story is that... Um, Mark Brunel saw soldiers coming back from the Peninsula Wars and they were limping. And they were limping because they had badly made boots. And, and worse than that, uh, I don't know how you choose a good boot, but one of the things you might do is pick it up. Uh, and if it feels heavy, then that's well made and that's substantial and that's solid and I'll wear that. Uh, but unscrupulous cobblers were putting uh, slabs of clay in the heels of boots to make them feel heavier and better made. And, of course, if the clay gets wet, then it's soft and it distorts. And then when it dries again, it hardens into some appalling shape that is not friend to heel or ankle. And... And so these men were, were marching in, in badly made boots by, I don't wish to um, cast aspersions on all cobblers, but some of them were unscrupulous. So that's why Marc Brunel, the Frenchman, thought he'd do the same thing again. He devised an automated production system for the manufacture of boots so some say he's the greater genius certainly he's the the father of the modern world but i would uh, seeking a middle path i'd always say that actually when you look at the accomplishments of of brunel you have to look at the father and the son and a lot of isambard kingdom brunel's triumphs uh, drew on on his father's experience and know-how his father did a lot of the drawings for Clifton Suspension Bridge, his his most famous bridge, and the ship that was launched just down the river here um, the first modern ocean liner despite the SS Great Britain in Bristol which is a, a triumph of conservation and good fortune that it wasn't destroyed, you know, as as you probably know, it was towed from the South Atlantic and has been restored and, and won lots and lots of awards. But if you talk to a, a marine engineer, they'll tell you that the Great Eastern launched just down the river mm. and the Thames was, was more important for three reasons. It has a double hull for the first time. It has bulwarks or walls from the keel right up to the top deck and uninterrupted walls unlike the Titanic and for the first time in marine construction you have and this is his debt to his father you have um, construction on an industrial scale so this massive ship which is 700 feet long that's uh, 
that's like a felled skyscraper. That's that's like a 50-storey skyscraper. That's what it is, stretched out uh, on the um, on the other side of the river. We're not short of 50-storey skyscrapers that we can look around at right now. That's <laughs> that's an impressive thought. Yeah, well, 700 feet. Um, yes, when they when they look at ships, often they they do line them up against. Um, skyscrapers i don't know how tall the shard is that we're looking at now uh, but it's 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 a good good long ship it's longer than it's longer than paddington station which is his railway terminus in in london here's a man building ships longer than railway terminus uh, and it was the first example of uh, marine construction on an industrial scale. So this is massive, 700 foot long uh, ocean liner, uh, and they hammered three million rivets into this thing. Uh, each plate, and there were thirty thousand plates. Each plate has a hundred rivets on it. Uh, there are thirty thousand plates, but there are only three different sizes. So this is standardised production. So this is absolutely what his father was doing in those examples I've given you. So it, it, you can't say, well, that's IKB and that's Mark Brunel. The truth is, if if your dad was doing your job, you'd ask him, or your mum for that matter, you'd ask them how to do it, and that's what Brunel did. And I have to say, there was a third Brunel just over there you can see Tower Bridge now that's a Brunel crossing is it really? yeah the the man who designed it the man who won the competition for the design of Tower Bridge was called Horace Jones but within a year of winning the competition he was knighted and dead and (laughs) what a year that was (laughs) yeah light and shade I suppose light and shade (laughs) Um, uh, within a year uh, he was dead and the bridge was built by his two engineers and his two engineers were Henry Mark Brunel and Sir John Wolfe Barry Henry Mark Brunel is the son of Isambard Kingdom Brunel the grandson of Sir Mark Brunel so there's a, a dynasty three generations of, of engineers in the Brunel family. It's funny, isn't it, that Tower Bridge, uh, one of the most famous bridges in the world, and it's built by uh, Henry Mark Brunel, son of Isabon Kingdom Brunel, and Sir John Wolfe Barry, son of Sir Charles Barry, who built the Houses of Parliament. So two children of two famous parents, they built one of the most famous bridges in the world. Nobody's heard of them. If... If you see the slightest leanings towards celebrity in either parent, just get rid of them because they will only get in the way. Three generations. <laughs> so that's it from the end of part one. Robert Hulse is advocating patricide if you suspect your parent may overshadow you. That's uh, official. Um, I can see now why it's called the Brunel Museum rather than the Isambard Kingdom Brunel Museum. We're going to be back in just a moment. We're going to take a word from our sponsor. London Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf. We are at the Brunel Museum in Rotherhithe. And well, I've, I've just come into a brick-built shed, I'm going to call it. It's not much more glamorous than that. There are wooden beams supporting the roof. There are two or three gantried levels here. It's all very industrial and lots of red tile on the floor of various ages by the looks of it. The far end, I can see, leads off into a uh, sort of cobbled, uh, perhaps a courtyard or a passageway. I'm not sure what's through there. And the walls are lined with pictures, busts, maps and other things. We're in Rotherhithe, of course, and somebody uh, scurrying past was uh, just introduced to me as Lottie the Midnight Apothecary and Cocktail Gardener. I don't know if that's real. She was flesh and bone. She was a real person. But what, what is she doing here? Well, uh, this is an industrial building. It's um, and it is as as 
utilitarian and as unglamorous as you describe. Um, and it was built to house pumping engines to get the water out of the tunnel. And I'm looking now, you see through the door, at the, the cocktail garden. Let's have a closer look at it. I'm just going to uh, uh, take you across to the doorway, listener. Everything outside the museum is sky blue, by the way. The outside is all coated sky blue, and there are sky blue wrought iron railings surrounding an area that's floral. It looks like wildflowers in there. What happens in there? This is the hottest pop-up cocktail bar in town. And in Brunel's day, of course, this was the top of the shaft, the sinking tower, the hole that was built above the ground. So this would have been covered with steam engines and pumping engines and boilers and it would have been very very noisy now uh, it's an oasis of calm and it is what Lottie the cocktail gardener calls a potager garden so that's the French word for soup potage uh, and a potager garden because there are things to eat there as well as things to look at and enjoy so uh, of course there are herbs and I'm looking at lavender and rosemary and there are also hollyhocks uh, which I don't think you should eat there's rhubarb there are runner beans later there are rose hips later there are trailing strawberries and runner beans and this is um, a vine this is Chateau Brunel on its way and because this is an Anglo-French project, just further along the railings, uh, there are hops. So this is uh, a, a pretty little garden full of things to eat and things to enjoy and look at. And um, it's also where every Saturday through the summer we serve the best cocktails in Europe. Uh, he says they're by breaking trading standards rules flagrantly. Um, I, I have a little bit of a concern because I'm imagining, uh, if I've understood you correctly, this is on top of a 50-foot shaft, and I'm imagining Lottie, the cocktail gardener, digging in some uh, potatoes or something and tumbling to her doom. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Do you want to go up and see it? No, not at all, if that's the possibility. <laughs> this no, way. No, thank you. Oh, dear, we're going. <clears throat> I've got to say this is an avenue down which I didn't think we'd be turning. monkey puzzle a monkey puzzle which was made by the local children um there's a monkey puzzle tree in the garden below which was seeded from trees that brunel planted so here we are and this is, this is quite safe is it are you sure there's not yes. uh, f- 50 feet of emptiness below us uh, well uh, it is safe and there is 50 feet of emptiness below us um but we we've had this tested and the engineers say you could put uh a Humvee on top of this and it still wouldn't sink. Uh, so it's it's solid, it's robust. What, what a curious choice of expression the engineers have. Yes, I know. Well, they're sort of very attaboy, aren't they? They choose not to deal with actual weight, you know, kilograms and so forth. I think they were simplifying it for me, but they <laughs> chose the wrong paradigm. <laughs> what, would you, what would you have chosen as an example of a heavy object? Uh, well, bus, I think, would have been... <laughs> closer to it for me a Londoner uh, through and through yes my my uh, my familiarity with Humvees is 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 slender yes uh, <laughs> and I think that may be line of the week <laughs> so we're in a little clearing here we've got some benches around um, uh, what looks like a might become a barbecue at some point yeah this is a, a, a sundial and it's got stovepipe hats ringing it and on cocktail ev- evenings we uh, we do make a little fire here and we toast marshmallows and um, there's a list behind you of the cocktails on offer gin, rose petal syrup, jasmine infused, elderflower liqueur, lemon juice orange uh, orange bitter and soda um, strawberry thyme which is vodka, thyme soaked strawberries, lemon juice and soda and maple syrup, chocolate mint 
julep. Oh, I'm getting hungry. I know, and I know, I know. It's good, isn't it? You should come. There's also there's a wonderful effect here. After it's rained, you have the flowers giving up their, their perfume a little more readily, and we're standing next to a bed of the most glorious blooms in tangerine and russet and scarlet here, and the smell is wonderful. There's also bushes of what looks like lavender, beautifully fragrant. Um, not the sort of industrial landscape to, uh, landscape I was expecting to encounter today. Exactly. And uh, isn't it wonderful that this is so very different from the kind of fierce, noisy, uh, uh, headache-producing racket that must have been going on here in, in Brunel's day? This is a little, a little calm sanctuary, and it's, um, it's a very popular uh, cocktail bar. Remind us again what days you have uh, events here? Uh, the cocktails every Saturday evening from uh, 5 o'clock uh, till 10 o'clock. And uh, this Saturday we're celebrating Bastille Day because Marc Brunel was French. Um, so we have, uh, we have music as well as cocktails. And um, cocktails with a French twist... Uh, twist Francais. Hmm. I don't know what the French for twist is, but I mean... <laughs> <laughs> not sure I'd understand you if you no, did. Well, yeah. well, a bit so of Catalogue action. Uh, <laughs> it's quite interesting when you look up, there's the correspondence here of the chimney uh, coming from the museum itself, and over the back of it there's a church spire, and those two things really seem to combine to tell you what the foci were of early Victorian days, I suppose. The chimney is for the... Uh, for the pumping engines that were getting water out of the tunnel. And the spire, uh, that's uh, St Mary Church, Rotherhithe, on the occasion of the first flood, because this tunnel flooded five times, on the occasion of the first flood, the the vicar at the time, which is um, May 1827, uh, the vicar took as his text the day after the disaster he took as his text um just judgment on the presumptions of mortal men the only sad thing for the vicar i think was 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 he knighted and then died immediately (laughs) well nobody died to uh add uh add substance and yeah nobody died in the first flood the vicar happy long and um and particular life i think but i you shouldn't take texts after disasters about why they deserved it, I think, is a general rule. Yes, I strongly agree. We need to head below stairs, I think, because I've heard that there's something worth looking at down below. Yes. Yes, let's do that. Should we go? Yeah, okay. I just want to really flag up, I guess. As I started the podcast, I mentioned the sense of calm. I really do mean that. It's very few places, I think, in London, particularly in the middle of the week, in the middle of the city, that you can find a sense of calm. And and this really does have it. Just to locate where we are, Rotherhithe is on that newer spur of the overground, the one that goes from Highbury and Islington and connects around, uh, I think it goes via New Cross and connects up with Clapham Junction. It's dead easy to get to. And uh, the, the place is literally by the station. You can't miss it i really think um popping in here is is well worth a look i think my guest may agree with that yes uh i quite impartially i think you put it beautifully well yeah yeah (laughs) well yeah where are we off to now we're not going through the the main part of the building itself instead we're heading past several (laughs) brilliant benches designed to look like bridges brunel bridges yes this is uh hungerford which is brunel's first thames bridge and the piers are still there. They carry the railway bridge into Charing Cross. Now, what was that? Because that bridge lasted for a very, very short period of time, didn't it, before it was removed? Why was that? Yes. Well, there's nothing wrong with the bridge. I mean, it was actually a very good investment. It was built in 1841 for £80,000. And it was sold to the railway in 1864, so twenty. 20-something years later, was sold for £120,000. And whilst it operated, it operated as a pedestrian bridge. It was a suspension bridge to take people over the river to Hungerford Market, which is now the site of Charing Cross Station. 
they charged a penny toll. That was the fee for crossing the river, by the way, by boat, by bridge, by whatever. Um, and the the revenue from pedestrians crossing was £25,000 a year. So that's actually, you know, capital growth and, and, and substantial revenue. Uh, there's another figure I don't have, which was the money that the Thames river steamers paid to use the piers which is still there use the piers to embark and disembark hold on then this has just completely transformed my understanding of what brunel was up to engineering triumphs notwithstanding he was actually um sort of an arch capitalist wasn't he he's building money making objects whether it's a tunnel whether it's a bridge these things are creating revenue yes that's right i mean i think he has a reputation, and it's a bit undeserved, of being a bit of a financial disaster. But but this uh, is a very good investment, and uh, these were all business propositions. Some of them went wrong. The Great Eastern we were talking about, uh, it, it was never the, the huge financial uh, triumph that they expected, but it was a ship that was commercially active for 25 years that's a good record then it's a good record now this tunnel uh, it it is still being used a uh, hundred and something years later in Brunel's day it um, it didn't do very well financially and it was intended as a f- for, to be used by p- people on foot and uh, horses and carriages was it uh, well m- mostly for cargo i mean it was used uh, by people on foot in fact it opened in 1843 and on the first day there were 50,000 visitors so i mean that's that's fabulous uh, in the first 3 months this is 1843 in the first 3 months there were a million visitors. That's half the population of London. So, yes, he's, he's a businessman. Um, I think he's probably a better businessman than his father. But he made some bad choices, of course, but not all of them. I mean, that's a, that was a successful bridge. Uh, and here it is. Uh, on, uh, it, it, it's capped with um, Campanile Towers, so like something you see in Florence. Um, it was a very elegant bridge uh, that Brunel built. The towers have been taken down. The chains that we're looking at, the chains uh, now span the gorge at Clifton and his Bristol Bridge, so they were reused. Uh, over here, this is one of the arches of Maidenhead Bridge. Which now, what are you pointing at? Well, Oh, that bench? That bench, yes, under that uh, false acacia tree with the bolts through it. It's our Frankenstein tree. Um, there's there's an arch which uh, there are two arches at Maidenhead up the river of course and that uh, was and is the longest, flattest widest brick arch structure in the world and it's still there taking trains on the Great Western Railway and here is we're looking, at, we're looking at a bench now uh, with a slightly. T- I'm, I'm not going to attempt to do bridge shapes. Uh, that's that's <laughs> beyond my pay grade, I'm afraid. But there's a train going through this one. Yes, and it's um, it's actually a suspension bridge. You can see the chains, but on top of the suspension chains, there's a tubular arch, and uh, that's the cleverness of the design because you see on Hungerford suspension bridge, the uh, there are, there's a chain going across the two towers but on each side of the towers there are anchoring cables because if they they weren't there the, the the towers would just collapse inwards so the the anchoring cables are stopping it from going in on itself um, and on an arch bridge and you see uh, uh, one underneath the tree there the uh, the the forces are pushing outwards so if the uh, abutments and the foundations at the end of the arches are not properly done, then that will uh, explode. Mm-hmm. It will um, collapse, push outwards. Yes, a, tap, a tap with a hammer at the, uh, the centre of the bridge would be disastrous. That sort of thing, yeah. Uh, but here uh, you have the arch, the tubular arch pushing outwards, like it does on that at the Maidenhead, and you've got below that 
suspension chains pulling together. So they're in opposition and they're equal. It's, uh, it's in balance. It's a very clever piece of engineering. The maths is complicated. It's beyond me. Uh, these are Brunel bridges. That's the one between Devon and Cornwall. And that's his last bridge. And these won awards. Uh, they were designed by uh, our resident artist and um, uh, built by local children on our play scheme. Were they really? Yeah. They're worthy of awards themselves. Yeah, and the well, the little steam locomotive that was done by children working with the blacksmith who has a. We have a blacksmith. He has a mobile forge, and on the. <laughs> yes. well, the thing I'm enjoying most about this podcast is you keep just offhandedly introducing me to these <laughs> this, this range of unlikely characters. The, <laughs> the cocktail gardener, the blacksmith who just happens to pop in. Yes, it's, it's getting a bit great expectations, isn't it? And then the the shaven-headed man in the marshes, Magwitch. No, that's not true. Well, you say that, but a shaven-headed man just walked past to whom you waved. Uh, yes, uh, he's 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 not a convict. Um, uh, Dave is uh, is a good chap. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we should move away from that controversial territory. Um, we, I'm saying this only because we have a show full of bridges next week. I right. think I think we should do some tunnelling. Yes, let's do some tunnelling. So uh, it is my great pleasure to invite you into uh, an extraordinary dramatic space that has been opened up for the first time in 150 years. And it's where Brunel began. So, uh, follow me. There are some wooden steps. Um, So, up the wooden step. Now, this is the tradesman's entrance to the lay eye. Put your left hand on the handrail and your right foot on the first footplate. And you see there's another footplate in the wall. Got it, yep. And then to here... And then spin, and then one, two, three, duck. The sound of presenter tumbling. The door that I'm approaching, listener, is about waist height at the top. Follow me. This is very John Malkovich. (laughs) Oh. I don't think I can get in. (laughs) Hang on. Hang on a second. Yeah, you're, you're a bit big for this doorway, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> it's a very short tunnel. It's, um, it is low, but it's very short. And um, Just because you're missing the visual here, listener, the move I've had to make to get through the little passageway into this area is like the, uh, the famous Cossack dancing. <laughs> and and to, your credit, to your credit, without the music to help you through. <laughs> We're entering the top of... A scaffold, and below us I can see some chairs ranged out, but I'm not far enough down the gantry ladders to be able to see what we've got. Oh, look at this. Now I can. We're entering a big cylindrical space. I'd say about uh, 15, 20 feet still to go before we hit the ground. And multicoloured lights are illuminating the walls of this chamber. This is the grand entrance hall to the eighth wonder of the world. And it is, as you describe it, and it was very different in Brunel's day. The big step there. This is where Isambard King de Brunel nearly drowned. And he was sent from here to Bristol to convalesce. You hear the train... The train is beneath our feet. So that's the overground line that I was talking about that goes through there now. It that's, used to be the East London line. That's exactly right, yeah. And on this big canvas here... Oh, here's another train. Well, you wouldn't know... From, from the sound, you wouldn't know you weren't on the platform. No, that's right. Uh, and they're, they're every three minutes. It's... Uh, it's a very successful piece of urban railway, a very fabulous, uh, very fabulous uh, addition to London's transport system. And uh, this is how it used to look. Do you see here this big canvas? 
Yeah, okay, the, the thing that I'd noticed on the, uh, on the wall here, you can see an indentation that's going up more or less diagonally, and you can pretty much guess that that's where a staircase would have been. And looking at the canvas here, um, a very uh, elegant and elaborate staircase. If you think about the entry hall going into some sort of uh, uh, grand uh, family house in the, in the deep south uh, pre-Civil War, then you'd step in and you'd see the landing high up above you and then two staircases left and right sweeping down. But on the ground floor, instead of the entry hall, we've got the opening to two tunnels and they stretch it in, on this canvas as far as the eye can see. We've got a horse and, uh, horse and uh, cart and pair coming out on one side. Some people nervously attempting to cross the road in front of it just there. This is the first tunnel under a river anywhere in the world. And on that picture you've been describing, there are two silhouetted figures in the middle. And that's roughly the level at which we are now standing. Because the tunnel beneath us was full of horse and cart. It's now full of trains. And... We are only able to get down here uh, thanks to this concrete slab which was installed when the line was closed to extend it north and south. Uh, We're very grateful to Balfour, Beatty, Carillion and Transport for London for installing this concrete floor. There's a, have you noticed, there's a, a water pattern. This is um, a reference to the five floods that happened in this chamber Uh, one of them took the lives of six men and um, the the lights around it they are theatrical because this is a theatre space and we have concerts and performances down here and we're now directly below the sundial in the potager garden where we were stood just a little while ago. Oh, that's my fears assuaged. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're not going to plummet to the centre of the earth, then you're merely going to interrupt a theatre performance. Exactly, that's right, yes. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I'm, I'm just taken with the, um, the correspondences in the picture here. And that really is a great... There, there's something about the uh, Victorian eye when it comes to... Whether it's the great sewers or whatever it might be, some of the... Um, um, power stations there, there is a sense of grandiosity isn't there and confidence yes the the tunnel was designed to move cargo by horse and by cart and uh, this picture that we're looking at as they say this never happened this is what was going to happen they were going to use the tunnel to move cargo under the busiest river in the world we stood and looked at it a while ago and uh, there was very little movement the odd Thames clipper going up and down and we do do heritage boat tours three times a week but in Brunel's day this was the busiest river in the world in Brunel's day there were 3,000 tallmaster ships in the river every day a forest of ships masts there were 10,000 little boats the, the river was the biggest traffic jam in the world because the, the trade of the world came up and down the River Thames. The British school children of Brunel's day were living in a world where a quarter of the land surface was the British Empire and British school children were taught the sun never sets on the British Empire. The Spanish school children were taught the same of course, but it was a French friend who explained to me the sun never sets on the British Empire because God doesn't trust the British in the dark. Perhaps he's right not to. And uh, the tunnel was designed to move cargo under the busiest river uh, and in the biggest city and the most prosperous industrial nation in the world. This was the the workshop of the world. This was the industrial powerhouse. Uh, Jeremy Clarkson did that wonderful saying. Do you remember when he championed Brunel for Greatest Britons? He said, um, Brunel built Britain and Britain built the world, so Brunel built the world. Uh, now, Jeremy is uh, is... As 
grandiose as as Brunel, frankly. So he's a wonderful, um, uh, a wonderful champion for him. And Brunel came second behind Winston Churchill in our Greatest Britons competition. Well, you, you touch on a, a terrifically important point, though, that, when, to my mind, when we think about these construction projects, for example, being able to bridge the Thames, tunnel under the Thames, the very manufacturing processes, in fact, that you were talking about with the looms and industrial processes created by Isambard Kingdom, Brunel's father, this was a, a city where lots of stuff was being made and woven and put together now you know we, we sit looking at computer screens we're a service industry city by and large all the shipping's gone it's a very different vibe but the, the purpose that the city small c serves is entirely transformed well that's right and um the reason the tunnel was finished is because of that old perspective because of what you just said um the tunnel and we, we talked about how this tunnel was built inch by painful inch under the River Thames. Uh, what I didn't tell you is that it took 18 years to finish. So, so men grew old and died building this tunnel. This is the sunken hole. This is the tower built above and, and sunk. 18 years to get 1,200 feet across the other side. And... It was only finished because the government absolutely understood the importance of a a symbol and the importance of uh, an international perspective of Great Britain being great and being an industrial warehouse. And not, I mean, for all kinds of reasons, you can't have a half-completed tunnel at the centre of this big, popular, successful trading and industrial nation. The tunnel was finished uh, because, because of national pride. It was finished because you couldn't continue to sell Britain as the workshop of the world if right in the centre of it there's a half-completed white elephant. That, is that a mixed metaphor? <laughs> well, at the, at the risk of uh, stepping on uh, corporate toes, so I've got to pick my words carefully, but I believe that I remember when the Eurotunnel, as, as the Eurotunnel project um, evolved and, and got off the drawing board and started to be dug, I think it's reasonable to say that there were financial challenges faced by those who were going about that project, and I seem to remember that uh, extra rope was given to them than might otherwise have happened in order to try and get that to, to completion, and again, I think that was a, a face exercise, wasn't it? A face-saving exercise. Um, you say tunnel. I see tunnels, two tunnels in parallel. Yes, um, but it was built as one big tunnel. It was one big rectangular tunnel, and they split it in two. Ah, I see. Okay, so the actual tunnel is rectangular, and then we've got two arched tunnels within. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. This is still one of the largest bores in the world. Which well, well, that's very good of you to say so. <laughs> I do try. Yes, uh, no, no, I think um, I say that with a smile because that's exactly what my daughters say um, of the, um, the man looking after this tunnel. <laughs> we, unbelievably, we're up against the end of our allotted time on this week's show and I can tell not only from the fact that I'm still hungry for a lot more but also from the expression <laughs> on the face of my guest this week that there are one or two more things to say so I sort of think we're compelled to try and squeeze them in to our last couple of minutes I might ask what are the things that the people should know about the Brunels perhaps I should put it that way that they don't and what should they know about the tunnels and, and about the museum that they don't I think People should understand that the Brunels were fabulous improvisers. I mean, this tunnel, which was designed to move cargo under the busiest river in the world, opened as an underwater banquet hall, an underwater shopping arcade, an underwater fairground, an underwater multicultural festival, and an underwater knocking shop. Until it was sold to the railway in 1865 and there have been trains running through it ever since so this is uh, we were talking about Brunel as a businessman and not all of his business enterprises were 
successful. But goodness, uh, when things didn't go quite according to plan, he was ready with another idea and another PR stunt to push it along the track. And I like to think that at the museum we're doing the same kind of thing. It's a very small museum, it's a very big story, and we're very excited about the possibilities of this space. And uh, you are amongst the first to enter this underground chamber for 150 years. It's been completely inaccessible. It wasn't until this floor went in that we could bring people down here. And we do have concerts down here. And we have opera down here. We had Mozart down here. A hundred people enjoyed Cosi Fantuti. We have world music um, most Wednesday evenings. We have cocktails above ground every Saturday through the summer. And um, I think it's in the spirit uh, of that kind of manic, improvisatory flair that Brunel had. We had some MPs come here. No, parliamentarians, I should say. Parliamentarians came here. And the parliamentarians were the guests of APGUS. It's an acronym. And it's the All-Parliamentary Group for Underground Spaces. And they are the lobbying arm of the tunnelling industry. And I asked the chairwoman of APGUS... What is the message for the parliamentarians, if there is one? She said, yes, there is a message. And the message is, build it properly, because you don't know what it will be used for. And that's kind of counterintuitive, because this, because it was properly built, is now an underground theatre space, and above uh, an, under, uh, an overground cocktail party and below the oldest tunnel in the oldest underground system in the world. This is uh, improvisation um, in spades. On which tantalising note and highly appropriate uh, usage we have to bring things to a close for this week. We focused heavily on the tunnels side of things and on the figure of Isambard Kingdom Brunel. As I mentioned, next week we're going to be at the Museum of London Docklands there to visit an exhibition focusing on London's bridges. You can expect IKB's name to pop up there again as well, I suspect. And we have only time to mention the website of the Brunel Museum here in Rotherhithe. www.brunel-museum.org UK. Well, Robert Hulse, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Robert Hulse. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.